If the model disagrees with experiment, it is wrong. In that simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make any difference how beautiful your model is. It doesn't make any difference how smart you are, or who made the model, or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it is wrong. That is all there is to it. Take away those diamonds, I don't need those rocks. A second-hand car and a new pair of socks. I want liberty without conditions. Chasing Liberty is great pleasure in welcoming Latimer Alder to the channel this week, the last bastion of data-driven sensibility when it comes to both COVID and climate change. This episode, we're going to concentrate more on climate change, and Latimer's going to give us some background into how he got into it and where he's gone and where he may be going in the future, perhaps. Latimer, over to you. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for that uh, that's that kind introduction. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever followed the work I do on Twitter, but as John kind of alluded to, one of the things I've been trying to do is to give what I think of as ordinary people, that's not particularly uh, professional scientist, scientific type people, an insight into all the data that whirls about both the worlds of COVID and climate change. And I try to do that by comparing the numbers that people, that the scientists talk about with things that you and I as ordinary people can understand. And been the number of different pie charts I've done, you'll you'll kind of get the idea that that's what I'm trying to do is to give perspective on these. One thing that started me off, particularly with the COVID thing, and we'll come to why this is similar to climate in a bit, bit of a moment. One day, about a year ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a very intelligent person. He'd been, she was worked as a mid-level manager somewhere in, in the charity sector, so she was uh, no, 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 not stupid by any means. And we were discussing COVID and the number of people who had died. And she had got in her head that at that time, the number was, let's say, 40,000 people. And she thought this was an enormously big number, which 40,000 people is not quite half a Wembley. So, yes, it is quite a big number. But I then pointed out to her, but there are 68 million people in the UK. And she kind of thought of it and said, yeah, yeah, but it's still a very big number. And I said, well, that's just one person in every 1,600. And she could not accept this and had to get her calculator out <laughs> to put that into perspective. And that, for me, was a moment where I thought, hang on, people really don't understand this. And, and it, the truth is that for many people, numbers are unfamiliar and scary things. Now, John and I are probably lucky, or certainly I'm lucky, that I've spent my life looking at numbers so they don't scare me and I'm kind of got an intuitive feel for them but i recognize that 95 percent of the people don't have that it's not because they're stupid or because it's just our brains typically the way we've evolved evolve on stories and storytelling and being led and we're kind of herd animals if you go back into evolution and all those things which are certainly tribal animals if you go back into evolution um and we're good on doing what everybody else does because that's how tribes survive what we're not good at is looking at numbers and understanding them and putting them into context um, yeah I, I would certainly agree with that because i remember speaking to a neighbor very early on in the the whole situation and he was he was appalled again by the high numbers that were allegedly oh. dying from it, and I said, "But you do realize how many people die every day in the UK?" And he goes, yeah. "No, no, I don't." And he, I goes, "One thousand six hundred mm. people on average die yeah. every single day," and he's like, "No, that, that can't be true." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, it is true. It's six hundred thousand people a year, and if you look at it, we've lost. Uh, in the UK, 127,000, which is you know, a 20% increase in the number of people who died in a year, which is not great. I mean, I'd much rather it didn't happen. But it's not the end of the world either. And it, somehow we've let that 127,000 dominate our lives for a year when we effectively forgot about the 600,000 that uh, die every year. Uh, each and every year, they're just kind of noise level, which is kind of strange. Um, it's also interesting that if you go back into history, just to finish on the COVID point, if you go back onto history, every year before 2003, which really isn't that very long ago, 
every year before 2003, the death rate has been higher than it is has been even in 2020, even with COVID. Yeah. So over two thirds of my life, I'm in my 60s now, over two thirds of my life, the death rate has been above what we've had in the last year. And to be honest, nobody noticed. It was what happened. Why do we do this? One thing come that, that I'm struck by, there's a great cartoon about the Amish people in Pennsylvania in America. And you probably know the Amish people in Pennsylvania in America really reject modern society. They, they travel by horse and cart. They don't have television. They don't have motorized transport. Or at least they say they don't. They try, try to keep away from newfangled stuff like that and electricity and running water. And the, the cartoon say, and the cartoon says, so tell me, Mr. Amish person, why do you does your community not suffer from COVID? And the guy answers, he says, we don't have TV. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, I think there is. No journalist ever sold papers by saying very little of any interest happened in little snoring today is not going to sell newspapers and not going to make a journalistic career. So journalists are required to make things sound exciting, scary, and all the things that make people pay attention. Yeah, and right. they've, done, they've done a really good job of it this year. They've scared right. an awful lot of people. They've done a really good job of it, and they've partly they've done a really good job of it because they've got a winning audience who's, who's lapping it up. So, you know, it's, it's, it's symbiotic in some ways. So right. let's go back. Yeah, let's go back yeah. to your, your early days and how you, um, how you entered this this field of climate change and what brought you into it in the, in the beginning? Mm, I was thinking about this way back when, when I was a teenager, we used to go to Scotland for our holidays. My mother was half Scottish. We went to the Highlands quite often. And in the Highlands, there's things called moraines. And moraines are the big ridges of rocks and debris that came down on the glaciers. And when the glaciers got to the end of their travel in the Ice Age, they would effectively deposit all the rocks and stuff that had fallen onto the glaciers or they ripped away from the edge of the valley and left them there. And you can go and see these things and you can look at them and you, there's absolute perfect evidence that the Ice Ages that people talked about were there. There's no doubt about it. But if you go and look now, the glaciers that produced them were not there. And so very early on, when I was about 15, I understood the idea that climates changed. Once upon a time in Scotland and all the way down most of England, there were glaciers a, a mile deep and now there aren't. And from that idea, I got the idea that, yeah, climate's change. And it's the fact that climate changes at all is not something that surprises me or scares me or, you know, really much interests me. Yeah, it does. And, and we as human beings adapt to climate change as soon as we came down from Kenya, where humanity evolved to the colder climates. We evolved our habits. We started to wear different clothes. We wore furs, whatever it may have been. We ate different foods and so forth. And it, it's something that humanity is very good at. At one very basic level, I really can't quite see why so people are so upset by the concept of the climate changing. Anyway, where did I come into this sort of at a more specific level? When I was a, when I was a postgraduate student in chemistry, I, we were looking at the, um, the, the, the then current problem, which was the hole in the ozone layer. And that was the, the thing that got everybody's attention. Uh, and I was asked to write some computer models. This was the very, very early days of using computers, so it's late 70s. Early days of using computers to try and solve problems in chemistry, which is now called computational chemistry. And I wrote a cracking good model about some stuff that goes on with the greenhouse gases in the high atmosphere of, and under sunlight and all the things like that. Great model. I was extraordinarily proud of it. Really was, uh, you know, pleased with it until, until my friend who had the lab equipment looked at what my model predicted and then tried to measure what reality actually did. And sadly, reality did something completely different from what my model did. And that was the end last we ever heard of the model. And it was rightly consigned to the dustbin. And I don't imagine anybody's looked at it years, and probably rightly so. The lesson from that is that modelling, such as I did, and such as the whole climate change uh, scare is based upon, is only as good as if it actually matches reality. Uh, we seem to have forgotten that, and climate scientists seem to have forgotten that as well. When you look at the actual data of how much climate change there has been, it, it's there. It's 
probably we might have got the whole world one degree warmer in maybe 150, 200 years. Uh, we might have got uh, the sea level up about a foot in 100 years. We certainly have got the whole of the earth greener in the sense of there are more plants, they are stronger and they are growing better than they have been before by, by about 20 to 30 percent in the last 40 years. That's down to the greenhouse gases, the particularly carbon, well, especially carbon dioxide, which is plant food that's come in there. And all these changes have happened while we've been living and been alive. And to be perfectly honest, not many people have noticed much about it. If I think back to my youth in the 60s and 70s, is the climate here in the south of England very different from what it was then? Probably not. I've asked many people from their memories what's changed. I remember we had a very cold winter in 1963 and a very hot summer in 1975. And since then, not much has happened. Yeah. It is only when you come to computer to look at models of the future that there is anything at all scary that happens about the current climate change we have. So having seen my model collapse into a heap <laughs> on the first, uh, first brush with reality, um, I then went off and did something different for 30 odd years, worked in the IT business in particular, using the computer skills I'd, I'd got, even if my chemistry modeling wasn't up. Um, and so it was about 10, 12, 15 years ago, I found myself with half a day to spare. It was the time when I think Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and all the great gods of the time were saying, the science is settled of climate. And I thought, okay, half a day to spare, I will sit down and understand exactly what clever experiments these great scientists done to, to be able to settle something as complicated as science. And I genuinely thought that, you know, if I started at lunchtime, by tea time, I could have a decent understanding of, of all the science that was settled. Given that, you know, I, I didn't come to it as a complete novice. I knew quite a lot from my undergraduate and graduate days. <laughs> Anyway, that was 10, 12, 15 years ago, and I'm still looking for where the science is settled. Yeah, um, I, I find that a very strange thing for anyone who has any knowledge of science to say the yeah. science is settled, because if, it, if, if history of science and technology has taught us anything, it is that there's always more questions to be answered than there, oh, have, yeah. than there have been there answered. Are, there are some fundamental scientific principles that, that really are settled. You know, the laws of thermodynamics are pretty well settled. Nobody's going to, I don't, really don't think anybody's going to suddenly find a fourth law of thermodynamics that's hiding in a way there that negates laws one, two, and three. Or at the right level, nobody's going to suddenly find that Newton's laws of mechanics suddenly stop working. Might be modified by um, Einstein's. But you know, those are pretty fundamental things. Whether you can say, therefore, that if you increase carbon dioxide by, I don't know, 300 parts per million, the temperature will rise one degree centigrade and humanity will come to a catastrophe is really rather a slightly, a much bigger yeah, that, question that, than does the law of thermodynamics apply? Yes, it does. One, one can argue that the amount of carbon dioxide in the air isn't a driver for temperature. But temperature seems to follow, uh, sorry, mm -hmm. carbon dioxide seems to follow temperature. So if temperature goes up, the amount of carbon dioxide seems to follow it rather than the other way around. I don't know. I'm, I'm quite happy. The, the guy who originally wrote about greenhouse gases was a, was a chemist by, by chance, a man called Arrhenius, Fanti Arrhenius. Mm -hmm. And he wrote, about, you know, he wrote about the concept that uh, greenhouse gases would gently warm the world. I'm reasonably content that, that what he wrote then is is pretty much true. What I'm not content about is that, therefore, we have a big problem that needs fixing. Everywhere I look, I seem to see that a warmer world would be a, overall a better world. Look at, you know, Siberia and the, the tundra or, or the, the bits of the world covered in ice. Those are places where not much grows. It's pretty cold and nasty and there's very little life. You look at places that are warmer, then crops grow better, people grow better, and fundamentally, it is a better place. Yeah, and and interestingly, um, just the last couple of days, they have rediscovered the, some of the ice cores that were drilled in Greenland when the US military were oh. conducting their their um, their experimental camp there. Um, so they drilled some ice cores from allegedly millions of years ago. You know the the, the age of these yeah. ice cores. And they found 
what appears to be, well, what is plant material within those ice cores, which couldn't possibly have grown in Greenland if the ice sheets were still in place. So yeah. that that asks, asks a lot of questions, whether Greenland is actually, as or has been covered with ice as long as they say it has. And obviously at some point maybe it was green and not just a... A propaganda piece by Eric the Red, who was trying to get more people to move over there. Perhaps a bit of both. Um, certainly, certainly, I think you can find farmhouses there that, or farmsteads there under the ice that suggest people were there scratching a living. I don't think I'd have wanted to live in Greenland, however much they uh, called it. However much they called it green, it might have been pretty grey and horrible, actually. But yeah. But the but but again, I, I'll come back to my the point I made right earlier on. Okay, the climate changes. Get over it. Yeah. Really, yeah, I can't, uh, can't see. I'd like to just talk a little bit about um, what I think of as futurology and predictions, because that, this is absolutely key to the, the we have a climate emergency argument, uh, which is what people want us to spend lots of, lots of money and lots of our efforts over the next 20, 30, 40 years to solve this apparent, this quotes, climate emergency. As we've seen within our lifetimes, the climate has probably changed a little bit. We've not really noticed it because the changes are very small and very gradual. Uh, and at least in the UK, pretty much for the better. The argument that there is an emergency comes from other people's predictions of the future. It always has 30 years out, there's something scary going to happen. Therefore, you must do something now. And, and it doesn't really matter. You can go back 30 years and people saying almost exactly the same uh, as they're saying today. I was discussing on Twitter and somebody said, well, there'll be 100 million climate refugees because of climate change. And I said, well, yeah, 15 years ago, there were supposed to be 100 million climate refugees by now because of climate change and, and nobody can find them. It's yeah. always... And, and New York and, and Florida were supposed to be underwater. Be under, underwater and fly, and uh, the Maldives, I think, were going to be sunk within 20 years so that their new airports that they opened four of last year would be um, airports but submarine ports. Well, they still got tarmac on them, guys. It, it, you know, the predictions just never come true. Yeah. But let's let's think more more generally about futurology and trying to predict the future uh, as a general thing. And in the rest of our natural existences, if somebody comes along and tells us they're going to predict the future, we're pretty skeptical. Yeah? If somebody says the weather forecast is the weather forecast is that by the end of next week it's going to be sunny and warm, well, we all hope it's true, but we've still got our fingers crossed that perhaps they're going to get it wrong. Um, if a racing tipster comes along and tells you, put your money on slow old nag for the derby and you're going to win big, just pay me 10 quid for the, the tip. Again, we're going to be a little bit um, suspicious about whether that's the right thing to do. We might even wonder why the racing tipster isn't using his own money to bet on slow old nag rather than trying to get us to use her money paying him for it. And in all those cases, what we do is we go back and we look at what, what I would think of as track record. Are these people who are trying to tell us the future, have they got a track record of getting it right in racing tipster? You don't get it right. Your tipping career is pretty short-lived. You know, you, you probably won't survive six months if none of your horses ever win. And if you only do averagely well, well, then you're probably not going to you know, continue as a very successful one. Similarly, the weather forecasters. Um, weather forecasts have got better and better over the years, partly because they've got they can look out a bit further using the computer. But mostly because weather forecasts get tested every day. The guy from the Met Office says it's going to rain tomorrow and it doesn't rain. He has an immediate feedback to tell him it didn't rain now. And you know, being a sensible guy, he'll go back and look, say, ah, what, why was our forecast not right? And try to improve it. And as you do that every day for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you refine your forecasting methods and you refine your um your ways of you know getting it righter and righter and a, you know a, a weather forecaster gets it completely wrong all the time doesn't get his contract with the bbc renewed or doesn't get his contract here's corbyn the well-known uh, man who's being arrested he's a weather forecaster, and he does make a living he, he makes quite... yeah he makes quite a successful living out of forecasting the weather doesn't he um yeah pity, i know Piers. it's pity he doesn't have any social skills but yeah <laughs> the forecaster he's quite good 
Um, but when it comes to climate models, which are the things that these scares are all based on, all that goes out the window. I don't yeah. think there's ever been a climate model that has been successfully shown to forecast anything. And somehow we take for granted the idea that, oh, these are very clever people, uh, and therefore their forecast of what's going to happen 50 years out or 100 years out or 200 years out must be right. Well, let me tell you, I was a very clever person, or at least in my own estimation, I was a very clever person when I came up with my model of what was happening for the ozone layer problem. And it was proven to be completely wrong. So I wouldn't have, you know, I, any sensible person would have not bet their money on my model. Mm -hmm. And equally, I think we are very, very foolish to bet our money and our futures on climate models, which we have no way of knowing whether they're right or not. Yeah. Fundamental problem, listening to experts that have no way of making their own forecasts better. It's too slow a time. If you say you were a young graduate student now doing a climate model like I did for the ozone layer, by the time you get to the point where your model is really being tested 40 years out, you're at retirement. So you've had your whole career fantastic without anybody ever testing your model. I had about four minutes in my case. Um, these are fundamental difficulties with making such big decisions about our politics and our society and so forth on such flimsy evidence. And and to be honest, it's not just climate change because obviously the, the recent problems have shown up the problems in computer models there again and particularly yeah. Mr Ferguson's well, poor, poor yeah. track record. Well, indeed, if... if Perhaps we would have had better outcomes or different outcomes if somebody had asked before employing Mr. Ferguson as being the guru of all things, how good his track record of previous forecasters. Whenever I look at it, it's um, been very poor. Yeah. I thought yeah. I, I was reminded when I was talking about thinking about this stuff, I was reminded of the great science communicator, a guy called Richard Feynman, um, who probably ought to be better known today than he is. He was... In the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, now, one of the great, great men of science, and he was a great man in two ways. One, he was an excellent <clears throat> raconteur and storyteller and guy on the TV, a very, very amusing man. But two, he was no mean physicist. He effectively invented a whole science of uh, quantum stuff called quantum electrodynamics, and he won the Nobel Prize for it. So when Richard Feynman talks about science, he's not only an interpreter of it, he's a doer of it. So that gives him a great deal of, of credibility. And he was asked to talk about what is science all about. We've heard an awful lot of people you know, Boris has been saying, we follow the science and why are we doing climate emergency? Because the science tells us and all this stuff. And Feynman was asked, what is science? What, how does it work? And he says, very simple. He says, if you have a theory about science, you have an idea about science, or you might call it a model of some aspect of science, you must test it against reality or experiment, he calls it. Some things you, you can't actually do an experiment as we would think of it, but you just have to get what reality does, as, as in my model. And Feynman just, just put it like this. I'll use his exact quote. I can't do his New York accent, which uh, makes it even better. But here he goes. He says, the model disagrees with experiment. It is wrong. In that simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make any difference how beautiful your model is. It doesn't make any difference how smart you are, or who made the model, or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it is wrong. That is all there is to it. And that was Richard Feynman's one well, five-second summary of what science is all about. And that is, I think, still fundamental to what we're doing, what we need to do today. Yeah. It's not what 10 scientists think it is. It's not what the science says. It is what experiment and reality tells you is what the science is, not a consensus of yeah. people. 97% of the climate scientists agree that the climate is changing. Okay, 97%, that's just as much use as finding, you know, a vote at a party conference for a resolution. It doesn't make it true or false. It just tells you what those 97% of scientists think. But those are statements about the scientists, not statements about nature. No, exactly. So I mean, science how, should be about nature. Yeah, how many people um, didn't agree with Copernicus? Well, indeed. How many people didn't agree with? I, I mean, the, the great one, I think, is, and I, I don't have the book, but I've got pictures of the book. There was a wonderful book 
published in about the 1920s in German, and it was called A Hundred Authors Against Einstein. And these were the consensus of great scientists of the day, including some physicians and biologists and all that. And they all wrote this wonderful book, Hundert Alter gegen Einstein, with their contribution as to why Einstein was totally wrong and that his theory of relativity could not possibly be the case. Uh, unfortunately, Einstein went and, or I think it was Arthur Russell, went and did the experiment that proved that actually Einstein was right and the 100 authors' consensus was totally wrong. You cannot rely on just people all agreeing that something is true. Well, I mean, all we need to do is go back to the start of this podcast where you were going on about, you know, you, you were pointing out that people don't understand numbers. Yeah. And they don't understand relative risk, and they don't under—they don't understand proportion properly. Well, it's not that they don't understand. I mean, yes, it, you make it sound like a deficiency on their part. It's not necessarily deficiency on their part. It's just the way human humanity, human nature thinks, really. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm. I'm not um, singling anyone out in particular. Yeah. As you said, th- this is the thinking that's brought us to where we are today, which has has been an incredibly successful species so that thinking Mm. that thinking works um but it's difficult when you try as you as you're pointing out when you start to apply the data to it and then actually look at the relative risk and the relative you know proportions people don't understand because our inherent thinking doesn't really allow us to do so yeah yeah exactly it's it's difficult and it's much easier to do what somebody else tells you to do or think what somebody... I mean, again, a different friend, but a, the sim- similar sort of conversation about COVID that, that started my remarks. Yeah, and she said, well, you've got to believe something, and it's all across the news. And I thought, well, yes, but there's more to it than everybody keeps telling me so. Yeah. So with climate change, then, um, yes, the climate changes, my question would be, so what? It does. Why, why are we scared of it? Why, why do we think a warmer world is something to be frightened of? It's probably not going to be very much warmer, and it's probably going to take a very long time to get there, a human generation or more. Um, and I could imagine that if I was living within one foot of the current high tide mark, and somebody looked at NASA's data that shows that sea level is increasing at one foot a century, that I might be thinking, well, maybe I don't have to move, but maybe my grandchildren will have to move because in 70 years, we'll be nine inches closer to the high tide mark. But for everybody else on the planet, whether the the high tide goes up a foot or two, in a hundred years, probably doesn't make very much difference at all. I, I also worry about governments and, and politicians yeah. taking knee-jerk reactions to things. So well, they're being fed this, and then they start talking about, you know, cut, cut emissions by 50% or 30% or whatever they're talking about without any real thought about the consequence of what's going to happen to people that rely on, for instance, that rely on fossil fuel just to stay warm. So, yeah, well, yeah, I was just going to come to some, some other, other examples of that. Um, if you live in, I don't know, the highlands of China, um, China hasn't got, for its area, China hasn't got a huge coastline. So sea level rise for China is not such a big deal as it is for, for example, uh, the Maldives Islands, which are relatively low-lying. And for, um, for the United States of America, you've got the Atlantic coast and the Pacific coast, and there's flyover land in between, and it's 3,000 miles away. I always find it very amusing that the United States sea level rise people, the academics who work on that particular data, are located in Boulder, Colorado, which is about yeah. 6,000 feet up the Rocky Mountains and about as far from either coast as you can get in the continental United States. I've been to Boulder and you get not quite oxygen starvation up there, but it's beginning to be a little bit different. Why they put it there, I have no idea. And why they think a foot rise here or there is going to be an enormous problem, I don't know. But you mentioned some other things there, John. And um, Yeah, heating bills. A lot of the world is cold. We have to keep keep ourselves warm by burning fossil fuels. If it was warmer, we'd need to burn less fossil fuels, which is what people seem to want. So why don't we just let it get a bit warmer? Um, yeah. 
say that you know biodiversity will be uh, threatened by global warming. Well, whenever I learn a little bit about all the exotic species that we see, um, the exotic species and the biodiversity comes in the warmer parts of the world, not the colder parts of the world. You go and look at the tundra in, I don't know, northern Siberia. There ain't a lot of things moving around and breeding and doing anything up there. And you look at the rainforests, the tropical rainforests in the warm and wet Amazon, and that's where all the... You know, millions of different species are. Um, so again, I have to ask the question, what's so bad about global warming? Good point. Uh, I mean, you look at the the um, the Cambrian explosion of life. They, they yeah. reckon then the CO2 levels were, what, 1,200, 2,500, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. parts per million. Yeah, like four or five times what we have even now. Yeah, exactly. And in every case, nobody has ever sat down and done the idea of costs and benefits of global warming. They've just made the assumption that any warming must be bad, uh, which is about as crazy as saying, well, we must do a lockdown because it's going to work. And overall, it will be better. You only look at one side of the cost and costs and benefits, uh, costs and benefits equation. You will always get whichever result you want to because you put nothing on the other side. Yeah. Seems to me that if you're going to say global warming is inherent, you know, always bad and must be forced in all its in all its uh, manifestations, then you've got working backwards. You have to come to the logical conclusion that therefore at some point, presumably not very far ago, we had the perfect climate for the world that could not have been improved upon. And that's a very interesting question because then things is, whoa, what was it and when, when, did I, when was it and how do you know? And it's not going to be like that. Some places will benefit and some places will will uh, will suffer. But until you've done the overall sum sensibly of good and bad, you can't actually know what is the ideal temperature for the world, what is the climate that we should be aiming to get to. Uh, and just a knee-jerk reaction that says, we must stop everything all the time because it is universally bad seems to me to be both illogical and stupid. Yeah, good points. And here's here's the one that I can't get my head around is if we're in a climate emergency and you need to cut you know, your carbon output, why would then governments impose things like carbon tax and cap and trade where you can offset your carbon use by doing other things? Because if it's a climate emergency, surely you need to cut the carbon, not just not just allow those that are wealthy enough to pay for it. Ah. Well, now, who was it who said climate change is a religion for people who don't have a religion, who don't believe in religion? Yeah, uh, it can get very much like you're going into the idea of, you know, the old indulgences. Just give the church enough enough money, more money, sir, and we'll pray for you and your time in purgatory will be less. <laughs> yeah. Or let, let's all stick an icon of some... Of, the Virgin Mary in our windows to stave off the plague, or possibly we'll stick in an, a rainbow of the NHS to stave off the plague. There are huge numbers of similarities between that kind of idea that you can do good things, do good salvations by doing religious symbolic gestures. Yeah, um, I, I, that, that's a whole different podcast that probably needs people other than me to talk about. But but it's undoubtedly true that we have um, come upon we, we've reinvented or some people have reinvented religion uh, and climate change is their their new idea. Um, if yeah. you look at how Saint Greta is greeted. Um, I can never quite work out if she's a combination of uh, Joan of Arc and, and the Virgin Mary or what she is. But the, the fact that a lady who has fewer qualifications in science than almost anybody else on the planet uh, should be received as a god in the United Nations to talk about a complicated subject like climate change is beyond yeah. my comprehension. I, I don't understand why anyone can give her any any kind of credence whatsoever. I mean, climate change and, and climate modelling is so complex that even our best computers get it wrong all the time. And as you said, even with even with multiple passes daily on, on climate um, modelling for, for just weather forecasts, they still get it wrong on occasion. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they get better and better. But the the, the point about getting getting better is they have a feedback loop to help them do it. You know, they yeah. their 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 model gets tested every twenty four hours or possibly every six hours. It is frequently tested. Climate models for a hundred years away or fifty years away never get tested. There is no way to test it until that time has passed. So, you know, they they could say. Um, a herd of giant elephants 15 miles high will come stomping down from Scotland onto London by 2080. <laughs> they have absolutely no, no way of knowing whether it was true or not. Yeah. Or even Celtic were going to win the European Cup again or something, you know, something un- unlikely as that. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just a little football joke there. In <laughs> Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the back to the so what test so does that take yeah. us into the the, the cost benefit analysis for climate change you know it's, well, I think I, it's not all bad it's not all good there'll be it's not all bad it's not all good it's it's something that happens um and if you're gonna really 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 spend as much money as some people want us to and it is phenomenally large amounts of money they're talking about you know, it's a hundred thousand pounds per household. I think people want to talk about just in the UK, and that's probably an underestimate. And that's a hundred thousand pounds of your disposable income, not hundred thousand pounds of your before tax income. This is extra money you will have to spend out of your earnings or pension or whatever to decarbonise your household to get something that is probably no better and may well be considerably worse than what you have already. Save what? To save the glaciers in ski resorts? To save oh, polar bears whose numbers are increasing dramatically? They're going up, not yeah. down. If you, you don't see polar bears on climate change posters anymore. Why not? There's too many bloody polar bears. There's 30,000 of them now. There used to be 5,000. They're yeah. going up. Yeah, not they're, going down. they're reaching further south than other halves. Yeah. Yeah. You want to save the save the polar bear, then get more climate change, it seems to me. If you want to save the NHS from its a- annual winter crisis, well, how about we get the winter crisis you know, less winter in the UK? How do we do that? We make the climate warmer. A warmer UK climate would, in theory, at least have less winter crisis for the NHS. So that seems to me, you know, one thing on the benefit side of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more CO two in the atmosphere, the greener the whole Earth gets. And again, that seems to me to be a benefit yeah. to well, everybody. To everyone, the thing about that is that is a benefit to everybody on Earth. Yeah. It costs us. Nobody has to pay money for it. It's there already as we burn the fossil fuel, uh, and everybody benefits. So you burn something in Scotland, or I burn it in Surrey. And people in Australia and the poor people of Borneo and in India, they too get the benefit almost straight away. That seems to me a universal good that people just forget about or, or just don't, don't pay any attention to because it's inconvenient when they're thinking, well, there might be an extra hurricane hitting New Orleans in 15 years or something. So what could be the possible drawback of too much heat then? Would, would it increase desertification? Well, there's an interesting thought. Um if you believe the climate change mantra that people say, you're going to get wetter droughts um, and drier floods. That seems to be the, the thing right. at the top. In other words, it kind of depends who you ask about where and when. It will make things wetter and it will make things drier. It will make things windier and it will make things calmer. It will make things snowier and it will make things less snowier. In other words, there's no actual answer to that question. Yeah. But I think, well, I think, it's probably true to true is that if you look at what's going on around the Sahara Desert, it's getting a bit greener around the edges. Now, whether that's because of climate change or because of different forestry practice, or it's just doing it anyway, or more rain perhaps, whatever. It'll, you know, it the thing about climate change is it will change. Yeah. What, what you'll see in two hundred years will not be what you have today. And it probably isn't what you had two hundred years before now either. But as I keep saying, we're an adaptable species. We can live at temperatures plus 40 to minus 40. The two extremes may not be very nice, but humans live at them. Yep. Um, and a two-degree kind of change, which is the sorts of numbers they're talking about, over a period of 100-ish years, 200 years maybe, doesn't really seem to me to be a huge, great problem. Yeah, and it's not as if it's happening overnight, so you've plenty of time yeah. to adapt and yeah. accommodate. Yeah, so it's a- 
So, so you've already mentioned some of the, the money that they want to spend, but we also have these, t to me, madcap ideals um, from our, the world's favourite doctor, Mr Gates, who wants to dim the sun by injecting material into the sky. Ah, well, I think uh, that is a highly dangerous thing. Yeah. Uh, and the reason that is a highly dangerous thing is that water freezes. Water freezes at zero degrees centigrade. Yep. When water freezes, uh, one, it takes a lot of energy to do, uh, gives out a lot of energy, uh, two, which you have to put back in to reget it. But two, it then starts to, once it's frozen, instead of absorbing sunlight, it reflects sunlight. Thereby, you can quite easily get yourself into a vicious circle of cool, a cooling climate where more ice equals less heat equals more ice equals less heat and you get what we call an ice age yep. now i though i'm really not too much bothered about a little bit of global warming i would be terrified of a second ice another ice age another ice age is universally bad there are no good things about ice ages at all period end of they are horrible. We do not want one. And Bill messing around with the climate by sticking bits of uh, chalk or whatever it is up in the sunshine really should be put in uh, in a padded cell and, and not let out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was a big fear in the 70s, wasn't it? You know, the oh, next yeah. ice age is just yeah. around the corner. Oh, when, when I was at school, we, we whenever we thought about it, which probably wasn't very often, but whenever we thought about it, we knew that the world was cooling down and that we would be living in um you know wearing furs and so forth rather than uh t-shirt and shorts by now yeah yeah, yeah. it didn't happen i like so many predictions of <laughs> climate yeah. disaster or one thing or another but nonetheless the possibility of the climate spiral the vicious spiral of a cooling earth is really something to avoid it's bad it's bad for it's bad for crops it's bad for for animals it's bad for it's just bad you do not want a snowball planet no you don't and you ought to be a little bit concerned about the law of unintended consequences as well yeah but whatever whatever you start doing that you can't you probably can't stop it once you put the chalk in the atmosphere you've got no way of getting it back again ever what what happened to the um what happened to the ozone hole over the Antarctic? Did it shrink? Or? Um, well, I, to be honest, I've lost touch with. I think that the hole, as seen, has shrunk, but, but may still be there. The the question I don't think's ever been answered is was it was the hole that we all discovered in the 1970s and got so uh, excited about? Was it a new hole, or had it too always been there? Yeah. I don't think anybody had ever looked. Um, I probably should have looked this up, but I don't think anybody had ever looked before. You know, somebody looked up and said, Jesus, there's a hole in the ozone layer. <laughs> and we went, oh, there's a hole in the ozone layer. Yeah. Without really thinking about, well, what is that new or has it been there for billions of years? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> billions of years. Then, uh, well, okay, I got a nice postgraduate year or two after writing climate, writing models about it. But... Uh, and many you know, academic universities got some good funding for it. But you know, it's, it's ever so easy to do the something exciting happened in little snoring today bit rather than thinking about, yeah. is this really a problem? The things that, that I would ask people to think about when they hear about any of these scare stories about COVID, about um, climate change, about whatever, the, 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 I'm sure there are others uh, in the wings that, that will come to the fore in the next few years. Always, always, always go back and look at the data on what is happening that's your starting point and don't believe don't necessarily believe because somebody's on the telly they're telling you it right you can probably find on google a bit of intelligent searching the actual numbers go and look at those numbers don't be scared of them they're numbers you know about numbers you do it every day in your own life you you, know, you can deal with basic numbers. Look at those numbers and look at those numbers and put them into perspective of other numbers that you know about. So if somebody says there's 40,000 people died, yes, that's a big number. But then ask yourself the other question, well, how many people are there in the country? The answer is 68 million. You say, well, 40,000 in 68 million is about one in 1,500. 
One in 1,500 is something you can probably envisage. And that might give you the thing that says, well, it's not like I learned about in school, the Black Death, where one person in three was dying, which is, I think, how people were led to believe COVID might might actually end up. It's going to be one in three. It's at 500 yeah. now and, and one in around the world, one in 2,500. And if you're a fan, as I am, as many people know of Aldershot Town, well, 2,500 is a good home crowd for Aldershot, and it would be just one person dead in a whole year. Well, that's probably not going to be something I'm going to lose too much sleep. Sorry, and in this day and age, as you said, the numbers are available to all, to everyone. They, right. they might take a bit of finding, and you might have to be you know, go a little bit outside your comfort zone to look for them. But always try to get back to the real numbers and put them into perspective and pr- proportion. And when somebody comes along and tells you, but in 20 years or 30 years or next week, if you don't do a lockdown or whatever it might be, always look at the track record of these, of the models and the modelers that are giving you these things. If they haven't got a track record, they, they're doing no better than guessing. And for climate models, that's the best you're ever going to get. So you're going to have an awful lot of faith in the models and their outputs, that all the sacrifices and efforts and so forth that you're going to you're going to be forced or asked or forced to make for net zero are worth it in some way, and that overall you will leave a better world than you joined. It's a very big ask. Yeah, that is, and I, I mean, looking at everything that was talked about this evening and and going through it especially climate models my my take from this has been it's way too complicated for us to start mucking about with it should we not just be you know wait and see i certainly don't like the idea of trying to cool the climate yeah i think that undoubtedly can lead to disaster i'm only trying to get across the point that there's so many different variables out there that we're really starting to dabble in something that we can't comprehend and we can't really get a firm grip on if we try and change the climate by any stretch of the imagination. it's it's It could go either way and it could end up very badly for us. It could certainly end up very... Getting colder is certainly very, very badly for us. Yeah. I'm hard pushed to see how warmer is very, very bad for us. If only because, and we go back to geological history, we've had carbon levels certainly eight times what they are today. Yeah. Might even be ten times what they are today. And the geology tells us under those conditions, life thrived. It didn't yeah. die, it thrived. Well, yeah, it as you said, the Cambrian explosions and all that. It, and people who suggest that it's all going to run away, well, it's had plenty of opportunities. There must have been 10 or 20 times over the geological history when we've had similar sets of circumstances, and it didn't run away. So you, you're suggesting you know, people say the climate will run away into, into warmer, are suggesting something that we know does not has not happened. Thanks to Latimer for that great conversation around climate change. We've been very data-focused on this occasion, um, and all respect to Latimer for that. There are other areas of climate change that I'd like to have a, a, a deeper in-depth exploration of. The effects of the sun, for instance, on climate change, um, whether we're getting the true record from satellite data, from ground stations, from the historical record. Anyone who is interested in that, give me a shout on john at chasingliberty.life. And we can have you on the podcast and have a a good chat around that. But thanks again to Latimer for this one, and we'll be in touch soon. So stay sane, everyone. Bye. Take away those diamonds, I don't need those rocks. A second-hand car and a new pair of socks. I want liberty without conditions. From the floor I don't want to be your prisoner no more I want liberty Without conditions I want liberty On my conditions Take away those drums
too loud Give me a guitar and I'll play to the crowd I want liberty without conditions Take away that job, I don't want to work I'll stay at home and play in the dirt I want liberty without conditions I want liberty on my conditions Drink from the cup, pick from the vine I stay up late but I won't walk your line I want liberty Without conditions Work on the docks or down a hole Come out at night and pray for your soul I want liberty Without conditions I want liberty On my conditions Diamonds, I don't need those rocks A second-hand car and a new pair of socks I want liberty without conditions Roll up the carpet from the floor I don't want to be your prisoner no more I want liberty without conditions I want liberty on Conditions